The following program contains strong violence. Welcome to the campfire. Every month, I'll be here to bring you a new tale of terror, of horror, of the things that creep and crawl in the night. So join me as we descend into the things our minds dare not think of. Hello. Tonight's story isn't too hard to trace back to its origins. It is an adaptation of sorts of the song The Old Oak by the band Merciful Fate. As much as I'm sure you've enjoyed the song, I'm also sure you will take satisfaction in the story I've prepared for it. So, get comfy, and allow me to fill your mind with the horrors of a small town and their darkest secret. The Old Oak Celosia shuffled the papers in front of them around, and tapped their index finger to their cheek. Outside, birds were chirping loudly and flying past the open window. A warm breeze crept in from outside, lightly moving the papers that Celosia wasn't currently holding. The room was a shambles. Books and folders full of papers spilled out of the filing cabinets and off of shelves. The wind blew in again and caught a stack of papers nearby. As Celosia bent down to gather up the mess, a map of the local area slipped out of the papers. They had only arrived in Pei Bashendwa a month ago, and it had certainly taken more time than they anticipated getting acclimated to the small town. Just then, the door opened, and a petite young woman stepped through. It was Pauline, daughter of the local hunter Marcel. There was a concerned look on her face, and her gait was odd and halted. Good morning, Pauline, Celosia said with an extra burst of kindness behind it. Is there anything I can help you with? Do you have any records from the 1900s regarding the town's founding? She stammered out. Celosia felt a pang of sympathy. Pauline definitely seemed out of sorts, and maybe this information would help her. Unfortunately, they'd torn the room apart trying to reorganize what was originally a complete mess. They gestured to the state of the room, and Pauline gave a defeated sigh. Well, thank you anyway, she said, before turning back to the metal front door and leaving. Slozia let out a sigh and pulled the map from the floor, tacking it to the corkboard on the nearby wall. Standing in front of it, they marveled at the size of the town, situated just due south of Bar Lake. Only 200 or so people called the town home, and Celosia was doing their best to meet as many of them and ingratiate themselves to them. Their journey from the University of Arkansas to Pei Bashendwa seemed like a blur. At first, jobs were hard to come by, even with a master's. Luckily, one of their professors had heard of a very unique opportunity. The diminutive location was in need of a new town historian, the old one having retired that year. 
Salosian made haste to get out there as soon as the mayor had greenlit their application. Here they were now, in the historian's office, working diligently to dig into the town's history. Or, at least they were, the wind deciding at that moment to kick more of their work around the room. Salosia walked briskly over to the window and closed it. They turned back to the mess on the floor and worked to shuffle the papers together in the correct order. A few hours passed, and Salosia slumped down on a chair in exhaustion. Facts, figures, dates, and names swirled around their head, slowly piecing together fragments of the town's history. Overwhelming waves of anxiety started to wash over them. Salosia clenched their fists, closed their eyes, and took a deep breath. Slowly, the words and numbers began to melt together in their mind, turning into the forms of trees. A forest popped into view, the canopy tight against the sun. Small beams poked through the leaves, and the sounds of birds singing echoed around them. Slowly, they opened their eyes again, and the anxiety was gone. Salosia stood up and walked to the front door, stepping outside. The sun was slowly setting over the town, casting it in a beautiful golden glow. The sky was painted a tapestry of purples, light reds, and yellows. Salosia stood on the front steps of the Historical Society and took in the scene. Peba Shendwa was divided between the residential area and the shopping political area. On the latter sat the mayor's house and office, the post, the town square, various shops, and the Historical Society. The former led away from the town square by a single road due east that eventually branched out at right angles where the town lived otherwise. While the houses were remarkable, it was the town square that kept the viewer's eye. Paved in white stone, it extended from north to south, east to west, by about 50 yards. In the center of the square, surrounded by a ring of larger white stones, was an old oak tree. Its branches were twisted and gnarled, reaching up to the sky like a clawed hand. The bark was a deep, dark blackness, looking like a shadow come to life. A large hole was carved out on the side of the tree. The whole tree looked menacing and evil. Salosia shuddered a little and stepped down from the porch of the Historical Society building. There was nothing in the world that gave Salosia the heebie-jeebies more than that damned tree, and they went to great pains to avoid walking near it. There was a small path through the woods just behind the mayor's house that cut around to the middle of the residential area. Not only did it avoid the tree, but surrounded Salosia with a plethora of trees that had a calming effect on them. Their footfalls transitioned abruptly from stone to dirt as they pulled out of the square and into the thicket. Once they were in the forest proper, and the oak was long out of distance, they slowed their pace down to enjoy the scenery as they had since they first discovered the path. Night was setting, and the sounds of nocturnal animals began to rise from the furthest steps of the trees. The walk usually took around ten minutes, the same time of taking the square, but with an added bonus of being nowhere near the creepy oak. It wasn't long before the sun fully set and night took over. The moon hung in the sky full and bright, sending dazzling beams through the leaves. 
In the distance, the forest was now fully alive with hooting, chittering, and another noise that sounded close yet distant. Celosia had heard shrieks before, smaller animals meeting surprising and untimely fates from larger predators. But something about this particular shriek felt wrong. It sounded human. A woman? Nah, it couldn't have been, they thought to themselves. The shriek came in short intervals, much too short for an animal. Celosius stopped and started to turn back in the direction of the sound when one final shriek tore through the air and slowly faded before stopping entirely. Celosius stood still, surrounded by the trees and the sounds of animals. Everything sounded normal again. Natural. Once back home, Celosia flopped onto their bed and drew the covers over themselves. Whatever calm they had had was shaken by what had just happened. They clenched their fist, closed their eyes, and took a deep breath. Suddenly, they found themselves back in the forest, surrounded by trees. Everything was still and quiet. Much too quiet. Something felt wrong in the air. Slozia tried to move, but their feet were rooted to the ground. Thick vines and branches wrapped themselves around their legs. Slozia struggled against the branches as the quiet was suddenly pierced by the sounds of animals shrieking. Louder and louder, the cries got closer and closer. Slozia tried to cover their ears against the cacophonous onslaught, but it was of no use. Just as quickly as they started, the cries stopped. Celosia opened their eyes and looked down the path. In the way was the old oak from the square. It seemed to stare at her, the hole in its side looking more like a mouth. Suddenly, they were moving forward, even though they weren't moving their legs. The branches were now pushing them closer and closer to the oak. As the oak got closer, Celosia could make out the sounds of shrieking. It was just like the strange, human-like shriek they'd heard before. The hole in the oak drew closer and closer until a single piercing shriek tore out of it. Gasping and sweating, Celosia sat back up in bed. Light streamed in from the window, inviting the morning sun into the room. A quick breakfast was more than enough to soothe their jangled nerves. The nightmare and the strange events from the night before lingered in their mind. Celosia hurled the sheets off of them and got dressed. They headed outside and was almost immediately run over by the morels, all four of them rushing out of the house at the same time towards the square. The kids had smiles on their faces, but Mrs. Morell had a strange look on hers. Mr. Morell's face was like stone. As Celosia turned towards the square, they saw the last of the families ahead of them. The block took on an eerie look in the harsh sunlight, likely due to it bouncing off of the metal sides and roofs of the houses. Celosia arrived in the square to see the shops full of customers and goods. Oddly enough, though, Marcel was nowhere in sight. The town usually only bustled like this when Marcel came back with big kills. A feast would be held that night, with music and dancing. He'd always be front and center, 
parading around the kills, soaking in the attention and admiration of the townsfolk. Today, his absence was noticeable, seemingly only to Solosia. Everyone was clamoring for food and tchotchkes. Solosia surveyed the square and saw Marcel's shop off near the end. They shuddered and made their way past the throngs and the cursed-looking oak. A large number of the townsfolk stood in a circle around it, swaying and singing a strange song. Even though they were walking hastily, Solosia shot the oak a quick glance. There was something wrong about it. More than usual. A strange coloration near the bottom of the hole. Solosia shook their head and pushed on past it, denying it any further glances. Odd, they thought to themselves. No one was standing anywhere near Marcel's shop. Solosia placed a hand on the metal front door and pushed it open. The shop was completely empty of customers, but wares were hung up along the ceiling and on display in large refrigerated cases. A soft sound could be heard from somewhere in the back of the shop. It sounded like... sobbing? Hello? Marcel? Solosia called out. There came no answer. They walked to the back, and the sobbing got louder. Solosia knocked on the door, leading to the office inside. Marcel? The sobbing slowed down, and the door opened. Behind it was Marcel, a six-foot man built out of pure muscle. His eyes were red and bleary, with tear stains all down his face. Slozia reached up to give him a reassuring pat on the shoulder. Marcel, what happened? Marcel sniffed and looked Slozia in the eyes as best he could. He said nothing, but Slozia could see in his eyes that something grave had happened since the day before. He put a hand on Solosia's shoulder, opened his mouth to speak, but then quickly shut it and walked out of the store. Solosia stood dumbfounded, unsure what transpired and what they should do, if anything, next. They looked around the shop and noticed that Pauline wasn't around. In fact, Solosia hadn't seen Pauline since yesterday. The doors of the shop lay open still. Marcel disregarding it entirely on his way out. Solosia closed in as they exited the shop and stepped back out onto the square. They could just make out the shape of Marcel moving through the crowd. As he walked through, people pulled away from him, creating a flowing path for him to go through unimpeded. Solosia walked back into the crowd before seeing the mayor near the hole of the oak. Not wanting to be near it was almost enough to stop them from approaching, but their curiosity was stronger. Standing next to the mayor, a menacing scowl on his face, was Ferdinand Guerin, the mayor's muscle. Slozia waited while the mayor finished the speech they'd been giving before. Unlike quite a few people in the square, the mayor was beaming ear to ear. He smiled and waved as Slozia approached. Solosia, so glad to see you on this phenomenal day. The mayor's smile seemed to widen. Solosia ineffectually tried to match the smile and energy, but events of late made that harder to do. Good morning, Bruno. What exactly is going on around here? I've never seen you all quite like this. 
The mayor's smile seemed to go away briefly before coming back stronger than before. He reached into his pocket and fished out a small lighter. His fingers flew across it absentmindedly as he looked down at Celosia. It's a rare occasion for sure, but one that will ensure the town's future, he said cryptically. Before Celosia could ask another question, Mr. Morell came up beside him and whispered something in his ear. Sorry, Celosia, but duty calls. And like that, he disappeared into the crowd with Mr. Morell. Still confused, Celosia made their way back to the historical society. Perhaps burying themselves in work would take their mind off the odd events happening. Upon entering the building, Celosia was struck by a sense of something being off. The place was still a mess, but the back area where the records were kept was even worse than it had been the previous day. It was bad enough that Celosia decided to put off cleaning it up until the rest of the place was in order. Over the next month, Celosia slowly began to get control over the shabby state of the historical society, and learned quite a lot about their more recent history. Marcel and Pauline were the surviving members of the Wath family, dating back to the 1900s. His wife, Atalia, had passed 20 years prior of heart disease. When they got to the 1980s, there were three articles about odd disappearances in Pei Bashenwa, each a month apart. Given Pauline's disappearance, Celosia held the articles aside. Maybe they could shed some light on her fate. It was the middle of September, and Celosia had worked their way through a large portion of the archives. They kept their eyes open for any other articles they might be able to find regarding disappearances in the town. They almost missed another three articles from the 1960s, sandwiched between full-page advertisements. There were another three articles from the 1940s, and Celosia snapped them up quickly, adding them to the small stack they now had. The only section of the archives left to organize was from 1920, where all records stopped. It was likely this was the founding of the town. The day was full of slamming and sliding cabinets, and the ruffling of various kinds of documents as Celosia slid everything into their proper place. Before they knew it, the sun was setting fast. They decided to put the work to the next day and close up shop. Taking their usual path, things seemed to be back to normal. Nothing odd had happened in almost a month, and they were feeling pretty confident about finishing their organization of the historical society soon. Along the way, the sun set on the horizon, and the forest was soon lit by the sharp beams of the full moon. They were about to make the turn on the path that led to the houses when a familiar and off-putting noise became audible. It was the shriek. This time, it was deeper. Was it a man? This time, Celosia full-on bolted in the direction of the shrieking. It was then that Celosia had a blood-chilling realization. The shrieking was coming from the square. They fell out of a full run, and into a jog. They fell out of a full run, and into a jog. The thought of seeing that oak in the light of the moon sent shivers up their spine. By the time they were back at the square, the shrieking had faded away. It was replaced by an even stranger sound, as if people were chanting. 
Celosius strained to listen and thought they could make out the words, Live as we live. As soon as they set foot back on the stones of the square, all was quiet. Adrenaline poured into their veins, and they looked around, trying to make sense of what they had heard. The square looked terrifying in the bluish moonlight, and the oak seemed to be almost alive as the wind carried through its branches. Sounds of footsteps could be heard, and Celosia turned in their direction. Two figures were running as fast as they could away from the oak. Feeling brave, Celosia immediately began to give chase. The figures seemed to start as soon as they heard their footsteps and quickened their pace. They ran to the houses to the east and quickly went in two different directions between the houses. Celosia stood in the middle of the residential area, panting and looking around frantically. They desperately hoped the figures didn't get a good look at them and slunk away quietly back to their house. The next morning came without incident, and again the town was buzzing abnormally, like the month before. Slozia was determined to figure out what all the events they had been privy to had to do with one another, if anything. They picked the mayor out of the crowd and tried to pull them to the side away from Ferdinand, who got lost in the crowd as they walked away. On their way to the closest quiet space, Slozia could swear they overheard someone say, This time... It was Mr. Chenevere. What is it, Celosia? You look in absolute fright. Bruno, something really strange is going on here. I'm hoping you can help me. I just have a few questions. The smile on his face quickly turned into a frown. Well, I'll do my best. What has happened? Celosia caught their breath and started with the first night and the shrieking. Pauline's disappearance, then the incident with the two figures by the tree. The more they talked, the dourer the mayor's face looked. When they finally finished explaining everything, the mayor stood still, staring at them. A smile of realization slowly crept across his face. Once again, he reached into his pocket and pulled out the lighter, playing with it as he talked. Oh, there's nothing to worry about, Slozia. Pauline went to visit her aunt in Lamont. The shrieking you heard was probably just the animals around here. Nature can get quite rowdy when it doesn't want to go out that way, no? The figures? I'm sure it's just some of the more superstitious people in the town. You see, the oak has been here long before the founding of Pei Bashenwa. A lot of these locals believe that it's more than just a tree. It lives as we live, and inside of it is a dark force that controls the land. He chuckled. Some believe that we need to pay tribute to the tree, or it will destroy the land around it, and drive the town to ruin. These are all childish tall tales, of course. Some even believe it can hypnotize people into feeding it. His chuckle turned into a full-throated laugh. Surely you don't buy in these fairy tales? Celosia forced a laugh. Of course not. And a smile to match. I do have one question, though. Bruno's eyebrow went up. I'm not quite there yet, but do you know when the town was founded? The eyebrow held its height 
almost with an effort to not display a different expression. The 1920s. From what I remember, my father telling me, it was purchased from the locals and built on fur trapping and trading. Something in his grimace started to feel menacing, and Salozia realized that pushing any further might lead to something unpleasant. Thanks so much, Bruno. You really took a lot off of my mind. They quickly turned on their heel and walked away under the aggressive gaze of the mayor. Salozia pushed through the crowd and back into the Historical Society building. The back corner where the start of the archives was sat almost brooding. Somewhere within the diaries and news articles, there had to be something that made all of this make sense. They thought about the story the mayor told them. It has to be nonsense, right? There's no way that story is even remotely true. Slozia walked back to the desk with both fistfuls of documents, including a worn diary, which they set to the side. As they plowed through the past, nothing came up about missing people. There were, however, some articles that caught Salozia's attention. One, from August, detailed how the animals in the area started to vanish, making trapping fur almost impossible. Another from September, about how the local water had gone bad. A third, from October, went into detail about the local crops withering. Slozia was struck by a thought and went to the calendar. The night they had first encountered the strange noise was the night of the full moon. Pauline went missing the day after, and the town was in celebration. Last night, when they chased the two figures, was also a full moon. The next day, Mr. Chenevere was now missing, and the town was celebrating. Digging through the records and calendars, Salozia discovered that the dates of each article was on the day after a full moon. The last articles from 1920 took a significant shift, and all the maladies of the previous three months had been reversed. Something happened in November that changed things for the town. What was it, though? None of the other articles and documents seemed to shed much light on the events that returned the town to safety. Salozia threw the papers onto the floor in frustration and bumped the diary they'd set to the side. The first half of the diary detailed the family's life before Pei Pashenwa, their life in New York, how their parents grew restless with the city and wanted something more remote. Their journey to the tiny town was unremarkable, but Salozia continued on. A couple of months after they arrived in the town, the diary detailed the same story that the mayor told Salozia. The locals had described the oak as an unholy site possessed by something evil. The only way to keep it calm was to present it with tributes, or it would lay ruin to the town. The locals had offered it various kinds of foods every month, and were left alone. Once the settlers had taken over the land, however, no tributes were made to the oak. After the full moons in autumn, the town was ravaged by disasters. The next page drew a gasp out of Salozia. In November, the town got together to agree on a tribute, and tempers flared as no one could agree. In the bedlam, Denise Honore was knocked into the large hole in the oak, 
and never came back out. Over the next month, prior to the next full moon, the animals returned. It was then agreed by the town that during a full moon, they would sacrifice one person to appease the spirit within the oak. At first, the town conducted this twisted ritual every month, but they noticed nothing was changing and stopped. Everything seemed to be fine, and Solosi started skimming the pages again. Another entry stood out in which some townsfolk attempted to set the tree alight, but were stopped by a larger portion of the town. Nothing else in the diary lent any information, and Solosia ran back to the archive and sifted through 1920 through 1940. They found another diary, which seemed to have been written by the same person. The handwriting looked slightly different, likely due to their age. It took some time, but Solosia discovered the page they were looking for. In August of 1940, after the full moon, the animals started to leave again. The town remembered what happened in 1920, and the sacrifices continued. According to the diary, they also realized that only three months of the year were when the oak seemed to be active. In September and October, two more sacrifices were made, and the town settled in happily. The sacrifices became a tradition of the town, and while some people still maintained they should try and burn down the oak, others worried the act would anger the spirit within, killing them all, and quashed all discussion around it. A loud noise broke their concentration. The front door burst open and a menacing figure stood in the frame. Night had fallen without Solosia's notice, and that only accentuated the intruder's features. As they stepped into the light, Solosia recognized them. It was Ferdinand, and Solosia was pretty sure they knew what he was here for. Ferdinand took a step forward, and Solosia looked around for something to protect themselves with. Various tchotchkes were strewn about, each with some historical significance to the town. The nearest one, ironically enough, was a small metal sculpture of the town's oak tree. Solosia took it into their hand and held it with intent to use. Ferdinand stopped and looked at Solosia's hand and the sculpture. His usual scowl drew upward into a crooked smile. Another step, and he'd nearly cleared the front half of the floor. One of his arms, like a thick trunk, rose up from his side and swung through the air, aimed right at Slozia's face. Slozia managed to duck out of the way and swung the sculpture at Ferdinand's leg. One of the sharp branches tore through his pant leg and right into the skin, drawing blood. Slozia slid past Ferdinand and stood up behind him. They turned and started to rush for the door. Ferdinand hissed through his teeth and swung again, this time catching Slozia in the top of the back. The impact sent them hurtling through the door and sprawling out on the stones of the square. Their vision swam in front of them, with only doubles and gray blobs visible. The knock took the wind out of them, leaving them rolling in pain in front of the building. A large, meaty hand took hold of them by the front of their shirt and lifted them. Through the pain, they heard a familiar voice. I know this may seem contradictory, young historian, but perhaps you dug a little too deep? 
Celosia could almost hear the sick smile as Bruno walked over from the old oak. A small burst of light came in and out of view. He's playing with his lighter again. I believe it's time we gave the oak a little something extra. What do you say, Ferdinand? The hulking man grunted approvingly and started to haul Celosia towards the old oak. Celosia's days began to fade, and they, still clutching the oak sculpture, drove it deep into Ferdinand's arm. Ferdinand let out a huge howl and clutched with his other hand at his leg. His grip on Celosia loosened, and they staggered away towards the fur trading store. Once inside, they looked around for tools to use. Up on the wall were various knives, and below them on the shelf was a barrel labeled gasoline that the town had imported last month for working on the furs. Once again, Ferdinand burst through the door, startling Celosia even further. With a howl of rage, he hurled himself at Celosia. Behind him was the mayor, who kept close ranks with Ferdinand as best he could, given Ferdinand's rage. Celosia got onto the shelf just as they both reached them. As they tried to grab a knife, Ferdinand grabbed at their feet. Celosia kicked hard at them, but in their frenzied state, kicked the barrel repeatedly. It wobbled a bit and tipped over, losing its contents onto the mayor and Ferdinand. They started sputtering and gagging as the stench overwhelmed them. Celosia grabbed a knife and tried to run past, but Ferdinand thrashed and caught them. Celosia's speed took him by surprise, and he ended up flinging them into the mayor's side. Celosia felt a bump on Bruno's left leg and started to reach in the pocket for the lighter when Ferdinand finally got hold of them. It's time to bring this to a close, my friend, the mayor said in a hushed, angry tone. The three of them went back outside, and Ferdinand drug Celosia along the ground towards the oak. Celosia realized they still held the knife in their hand and took a swipe at Bruno's leg. It went right through his pant leg and sliced deep into his skin. A small clinking noise came out of nowhere, and so did a fist from Bruno right to Celosia's face. It stung like hell, but Celosia kept swinging the knife, eventually making contact with Ferdinand's hand. The cut was deep, and Ferdinand fell to the ground, the cumulative cuts starting to take effect. Celosia lay gasping and trying to ignore the pain in their back and face. They clambered along the ground before their other hand grabbed something other than stone. With their one good eye, they looked into their hand to see the lighter from the mayor's pocket. Gathering up what strength they had left, they pulled themselves up from the ground and rushed Ferdinand and the mayor. Flicking quickly, the lighter came to life, and both of them ignited quickly. Writhing and screaming in agony as the flames engulfed them. In the midst of the chaos, Slozia rammed into the mayor, knocking his flaming body into the mouth of the oak. His screams of anger and pain faded slowly, and for an excruciatingly long time, before it finally vanished. Ferdinand was succumbing to the flames as Slozia collapsed from the pain. As Slozia lay there near the dying man, the crackling grew louder. Out of the hole in the oak, little flickers of flame began to trickle out. More and more, they grew in size and number until all of the oak was ablaze. Soon, Ferdinand's screams and grunts ended, and all Celosia could hear was the crackle of the flames.
Between gasps came sighs of relief, and Celosia closed their eyes and let their body go limp and rested. As they lay there, the rest of the people of the town made their way onto the square. Some surrounded Celosia, others surrounded the oak, their smiles illuminated by the flickering firelight. Thank you for joining me in sharing these nights of terror. We'll be back next month with more spine-chilling tales. I look forward to seeing you again around the campfire. Sweet dreams. Thank you.